I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, where we bring together prospect editors and experts pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark and this week it's foreign affairs. The unipolar world of a dominant US is falling away as other nations most especially China, come to the fore. Ian Bremmer, the American political scientist, is going to speak to Steve Bloomfield about his new book, Us and Them, and discuss whether globalisation and globalism have failed. The globalists are very happy with globalism, but the average citizen across the West uh, is uh, not a believer in globalism, and and we've seen the results across uh, so many of our countries politically over the past years. And later in the podcast, Jay Elwes speaks to David Oman, former head of GCHQ, the government's secret communications agency, about how the internet is shaping and shifting politics around the world. But first, over to Steve. Ian Bremmer, welcome to Prospect. Thank you, good to be with you. Uh, tell us, why has globalisation failed? Globalisation has not failed. It hasn't? No, globalism has failed. Fine. Those are different things. <laughs> uh, no, globalization. I mean, is this idea that if you um, reduce uh, borders and barriers to entry for global markets, that things get cheaper and global growth increases because the markets are more efficient? That's absolutely true. And we've seen you know a billion plus people uh, rise out of poverty over the last generation as a consequence of that. Globalism is the idea. It's an ideology that has sprung from the West. And it is that we in the West should support open markets, open borders, transfer of people, um, uh, the West providing security and stability for a global order, that technology is going to bring everyone closer together. Those things have failed, right? The, The globalists are very happy with globalism, but the average citizen across the West uh, is uh, not a believer in globalism, and and we've seen the results across uh, so many of our countries politically over the past years. But isn't globalization at the heart of globalism? That's an interesting question. Um, I, I would say it's a piece of it, um, and it is clear, uh, as you've seen from Thomas Piketty's old book, Capital, right, that uh, globalization has created a lot of losers in uh, advanced industrial democracies because those jobs go away. And if your government 
even though a lot more money is made, even though goods are cheaper, if you don't have a job, you're not happy. If your government doesn't invest in infrastructure around you, the training, the policing, the, you know, sort of the school system, then, I mean, you're going to be unhappy with that aspect of globalization. But it's not just about money, right? I mean, uh, there are a lot of people that are angry uh, at uh, the United States and allies like Canada and the UK leading failed wars, uh, including Afghanistan, which has gone on for longer than any war in American history. Uh, and of course, it's the poor uh, that those wars have fought on the backs of. It's not the elites. Um, they're deeply unhappy about the changing composition of populations. Um, and we've seen that you know many have voted against the establishment, not because they're doing economically poorly, but because they really don't like the immigration of people that aren't like them and they want to change it. And um, there's been a real backlash uh, to the advance of technology, uh, which certainly displaces a lot more jobs uh, than anything we've seen from globalization and much more quickly. Uh, and also divides nations and undermines civic nationalism, the filter bubble, um, and the reality of how people consume their political information today. Let's take one of those issues mentioned immigration. Yeah. Um, if we were to look at here in the UK, for example, you know, it's often you know, that point you've just made. People are unhappy about the way their communities are changing. And yet the areas in the UK that have had the most immigration, you know, namely London and mm -hmm. other cities like that, those are the ones which voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union, mm -hmm. not to leave. And it was the areas where there was relatively little immigration, which seemed to be most exercised by that issue. Why is that, do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, areas that are doing relatively well, right, and a lot of the first tier cities are comparatively um, will end up voting um, to support open borders because they are in they see the benefits more directly themselves and they're in greater contact with you know sort of people that they feel comfortable with right um, uh, the history on whether or not people will support, um, large numbers of immigration, depending on where they live, depends on a number of factors. So first of all, have you been living with people that are different for you, from you for a long time? So if you look at Queens outside, uh, you know, sort of Manhattan, when Trump's and Trump's dad grew up there, it was uh, the whitest, most homogeneous of the boroughs in New York. Within two generations, it became absolutely the most diverse not just in New York, but in any major American city. And that kind of sudden transition usually leads to a significant backlash, right? I mean, irrespective of what kind of populations we're talking about. Then you also have issues that some populations integrate well. Some societies do a better job of integrating outside populations. Some really don't. So you see in Sweden, which we've always thought of as an incredibly, you know, sort of progressive social democratic model of governance, allowed in enormous numbers of Iraqis. Um, they were seen um, in major Swedish cities. They weren't particularly integrating well. Um, and the backlash against them was very significant. Um, we saw uh, Venezuelans being welcomed um, in many Latin American countries as they were fleeing, even because they're considered sort of one people, and now the numbers get too great. You have in Colombia the leading uh, candidate for the presidential elections coming up shortly is uh, winning on the basis in large part of quotas. Um, you know, Merkel, as you know, 
um, had has an economy that's doing very well in Germany. But when she brought large numbers of Syrians into the cities, people were very strongly opposed to that. And that really hurt um, her ability. Well, yeah, but let's not go too far on that. Mm -hmm. There were still, I think, like two-thirds of votes at the last election went to parties that were that were in favor of Merkel's refugee stance. Yes, yes, it's true. Uh, but um, you, you, again, you have to look at the baseline. Germany has been you know, the stable, kind of iconic democracy in the EU. And for the first time since World War II, you have an anti-immigration party coming into parliament, Not, and you need 5% to get in. They got 13 and now they're polling higher than the Social Democrats. I, w I was just in Germany, and it was astonishing to see how dramatic uh, that, that shift feels. I mean, in the UK, where you voted for Brexit, or the US, where we voted for Trump, um, clearly you look at Germany and you say, ah, oh, there aren't any problems in Germany. Everybody voted for Merkel again. But actually, for Germany, and given how well their economy is doing, that's an astonishing shift. In fact, there's really only one country in the advanced industrial democracies that isn't having this problem. Only one, and it's Japan. And it's really interesting why, right? Because backlash to globalization, actually Japanese population is shrinking. It's not an issue. Working class doesn't feel hollowed out. Backlash to immigration, actually Japanese don't allow many immigrants, right? Backlash to security issues, Actually, the Japanese have virtually no military, and they certainly don't send soldiers. Uh, constitutionally, they can't all over the world to fight. Backlash to technology, actually, Japan really homogeneous, and again, population is shrinking, so AI and automation is actually an advantage for Japan. So it's interesting. Like, globalism is failing, or has failed, in my view, um, as an ideology, and it's not a problem in Japan precisely because Japan has never embraced globalism. The problem I have with the the word globalism, is that there is no one, no politician anywhere who would stand up and say, I'm a globalist. We're putting this label on people that would disavow it were you to give it to them. But I'm actually a globalist. Um, I sure, mean, so for politicians. Example, well, I mean, I think that many politicians, I think that Macron, for example, Emmanuel Macron is someone that kind of wears his globalism on a sleeve, and he really does believe in it. Um, and uh, certainly when he came to the United States a week ago and he gave um, a speech to the joint houses of uh, Congress, you know, he, it was a repudiation, despite his chummy relationship, bon ami, uh, with Trump, it was a repudiation to pretty much Trump's entire worldview. Um, unfortunately, you're right. Uh, Macron is um, a, a, um, uh, an outsider on this. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible because the winds of change have become so rejectionist against uh, U.S.-led universalism that was the dominant ideology after World War II, um, it's become almost a dirty word. And that's astonishing, right? I mean, it's a real change. And, uh, and, and, and it, it troubles me, but I think we need to be honest about it because, I mean, I, I think that like, you, you should want a world where we think that no matter what country you come from, you're still a human being. And you have equal rights. I mean, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there were schoolers, school children all over the United States who memorized as part of their lessons the UN Charter. 
Now, I mean, the idea of that happening in the United States right now, I mean, imagine how Steve Bannon or Fox News would respond to that, right? You can't even imagine it. And yet, all we were talking about is universal human rights, is the idea that we're all people that deserve the same shot, the same opportunity. And the fact is that there's almost no one in the West that's willing to stand up for that right now. Is part of the problem, and I want to go back to globalization, which you say isn't a problem, um, and has actually been a good thing, in that for many people that you're talking about here who are angry at the moment, their anger is directed at globalization, not globalism. It's They are concerned or angry or upset that the economic model that they've been living in for the past 30, 40, 50 years has not worked out for them. If you're, for example, in this country now, why would you, if you're a young person, uh, support a capitalist system when you can't get a house, where you can't rely on your job. We assume that young people are going to support capitalism because, well, capitalism is what we've had for, for many, many years. But it hasn't really worked out for them very well, has it? It's very clear, uh, as I said, um, that, you know, it, when, that when you have um, free markets, um, there are people that it creates the most wealth of any system, but there are people that will be left behind and is the responsibility of elites with power in those societies to take care of those people. Now, I would argue that what they're upset about is not that the system of capitalism has failed them. It's that the institutions and their leaders and the people that they have invested authority with and legitimacy with have failed them. It is the idea that the political establishment, center-left and center-right, the heads, the captains of industry, and the CEOs of banks, and the mainstream media, and the public intellectuals, that they have failed them. And, and therefore, they are turning to much more disruptive uh, alternatives. They're looking to protest, uh, and they're casting, they're either disenfranchised, they're not bothering to vote at all, because they think no matter who they vote for, the system is rigged against them, or they are voting for people that they believe will bro break the system. Now, I believe that that is why Obama won, in large part, against Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary and also as president, first-term senator, complete outsider. We forget about that now because after eight years, he seemed to be part of the establishment. Um, and it's also why a surprising number of Obama voters were willing to vote for Trump after Bernie Sanders didn't pan out on the Democratic side. It feels like an extraordinary shift, like Barack Obama, Donald Trump, they hate each other, they're completely different. But from the perspective of a voter who wasn't saying, I hate capitalism, because capitalism, the average voter doesn't support capitalism. They don't have capital. I mean, I, I grew up in the projects. No one I grew up with was a capitalist. But the problem was that they increasingly felt that the elites were going to screw them. And my mother is not alive. But if she was, I'm sure she wouldn't have voted for Hillary or Bush. She would have ended up voting for Trump. My brother did vote for Trump. These were not stupid people. But they're people that read the National Enquirer. So, I mean, the, it's like the Sun or the Daily Mail or worse, right? Um, and they were early uh, ingesters of fake news. But it's not because they um, thought that um, everything that was written there was true. It's because they knew that the truths, the fancy facts of the educated elites were being used by them to perpetuate a system that showed that they didn't care about the average American or the average Brit or the average European, and that just wasn't okay. And I'm, even though I didn't vote for Trump, I am deeply empathetic to people that did for that reason. I'm deeply empathetic to why you would want to protest vote in an environment for, where for decades your democratically elected leaders 
have allowed you to continue to fail. That is that is a fundamental breakdown in liberal democracy. But isn't part of a huge part of that down to the failure of the economy over the last no, 10, 20, 30 no, years? No, no, you keep asking me that, and I don't, I don't understand why I haven't made myself clear on this. The political leaders have failed, right? This system has been has brought extraordinary wealth to the world and to the shareholders to of, of these companies that have taken advantage of it. If your elected government is unwilling and incapable of taking that wealth and ensuring that the people the average people are not taken care of, then that is not a failure of economics. That's a failure of politics, which is vastly more important here, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, the government is not supposed to be captured by special interests in industry. The government is supposed to be a fair arbiter, an umpire that regulates appropriately, that builds infrastructure, that makes sure that people have an opportunity. The American dream is so people have a shot. It's not equality of outcome, but it is equality of opportunity. And the American system has not provided that. It's very clear. Let's, since we talk about America, let, let's stick with America. There doesn't seem to be much of a thought through strategy from the Democrats as a whole, or even from many mainstream politicians on the center left as to how to tackle Trump effectively, what the message should be, the positive message to appeal I, to those people. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, uh, the Democratic strategy so far has been to have their head blown off by absolutely everything Trump does. I mean, so I, I just give you an example. Um, I think in terms of my coverage of Obama foreign policy, I was probably on balance more negative than positive 60-40. Right, just generally speaking, whether it's TPP or the PIP to Asia, Middle East, Syria, Russia, you name it, right? Um, Trump, I'm probably on foreign policy, which is, of course, what I know uh, the most. Um, I'm probably negative 90-10. And, and yet, for the 10% of things where I say the Trump administration is doing something right, right, for example, the opening of North Korea, the response from the left in the United States is astonishing. Right. It's like, how can you possibly say anything nice about this person that's like just, you know, obviously the worst, most incapable president? And he is an incredibly incapable president. It's not the point. Right. They've they've become unhinged by him. They they don't know how to respond, as you say. And as a consequence, it's all a, a process of of vilifying and not just vilifying Trump, but vilifying Trump's supporters. And I think the best way to ensure that Trump wins a second term is to keep doing that, right? Is to, is to go after him and his supporters as being deplorables, um, which of course Hillary uh, did and, and certainly should not have. Um, it is to talk about you know the states that they are from as being backwards looking and not progressive, which Hillary did, and certainly she should not have. It, it's, it's to actually try to bring people together. Oprah said this. She said she's not running for president, but whoever runs needs not to be focused on Trump, but instead be focusing on what you're going to do. And so what would that message be? If you were crafting it right now, something to appeal to those people who, you know, to use that slightly overused phrase, feel they've been left behind, yeah. what would that message be? Um, you know, I just put a piece together in Foreign Affairs with Joe Kennedy. Uh, where we try to do some of this, actually. I mean, it's kind of like you need to promise people that we can do great society again. I mean, this is Obama's big failing after, uh, you know, after the financial crisis, uh, you know, sort of hit, was not to use some of his capital to focus on the single thing that is most broken 
for America's future, which is the educational system for people that otherwise don't have access to great schools, especially the sort of early stage K through four, K through six, which is where it matters so much. We, we have to fix that. The Americans right now are at the bottom of the league tables in the OECD on education, and that requires serious investment. And by the way, we have the money. I mean, Trump has just passed a budget which feels like a Democrat budget. It's money for everybody in low-interest environment, but it's you know short-term giveaways. It's not investing in the long term. Trump Trump talks about infrastructure week, which is so was so poor in implementation that it's almost become the the butt of a joke. Um, one week, he talks about building a wall every day. He shouldn't be talking about building a wall every day. Every day he should be talking about infrastructure. That's what the Democrats need to do. They, they need to focus on what are the things in the United States that are broken. There's actually not, this isn't magic. This stuff isn't actually that hard, but it's expensive. And you have to be willing to prioritize and actually pay for it. And that's what they need to focus on. If we can switch uh, briefly to the UK, yeah. a country which you know, you've visited a lot, you, you, know, you know pretty well. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn here, we have another source of populist, someone on the left rather than the right. Um, what do you think of the way that Corbyn has approached this, this same issue of what to do about an economy that hasn't been working for, for many people? Um, I, I fear that his economic solutions will make life worse. As I said, I, I believe that the issue is not globalization and free trade and the private sector. I believe it is that the government needs to then effectively redistribute wealth and effectively regulate those institutions. Uh, I don't think that Corbyn is interested in doing that. I think that Corbyn is interested in nationalizing, right? Um, and I think that would be very inefficient as an outcome. Um, I worry about Corbyn on international affairs and the way he's reacted to things like Cuba or Russia, for example, which seem to be very counter to the British national interest over the long term. And I don't, I don't think of Corbyn as a bad Blair, right? I, I think of him as a good Trotsky. And uh, that's really not the direction that you want to go for uh, improved governance in the United Kingdom. And yet if you look at the UK right now, you have to think there's at least a coin flip that he's going to be a prime minister real soon, right? And, uh, and that's really quite something, right? I mean, it seems to me that um, the UK can get through Brexit. It was on balance a stupid thing for the UK to do, uh, but you can get through it. Uh, I think that on top of Brexit, having Corbyn as your prime minister is actually a much greater risk for the UK and for the future of the UK. We'll leave it there. Ian Bremmer, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Steve Bloomfield there. Next, Jay Elway spoke to the former spymaster David Omand about the world of fake news, propaganda and cyber mischief that's recently been all over the headlines. And Jay, how did that go? Yeah, that's right. We had him in for an in-conversation event to talk about uh, the role of the internet uh, in shaking up politics and how it's led us into this nihilistic kind of world of post-truth propaganda and all the rest of it. So I put to him a quote from the recent book by the historian, the Yale historian, Tim Schneider, which is called On Tyranny. And we pick it up from there. Here's that quote from Schneider. And Oman's response to it was pretty striking. He wrote particularly that post-truth is pre-fascism. And that was a, a comment that I, I cannot get out of my head. I mean, how do you react to that as somebody who's seen this very close up? I mean, it might be more accurate to say pre-authoritarianism. Right. So, doesn't necessarily follow historical patterns. But yes, I, I have some 
sympathy with, with that point of view. Um, the immersive nature of the medium, uh, the way in which the impact that material has is not through rationation, it's through emotional impact. Because so much of it is visual and so much of it is written, you know, as the best advertisements are written, to have an emotional impact. I mean, when you see a, a, a television commercial for a new motor car, what you are perceiving are not rational arguments why their suspension is better than somebody else's suspension. These are emotional arguments designed to uh, resonate with the inner you, whether it's you know, escapist driving at speed down some motorway or uh, uh, picking up the family. So it's very carefully targeted on groups of users. To Now, um, this is one of the uh, conundrums that since we give our information away, these companies have our information. They have our they may well have our browsing history. Uh, and the machines, therefore, know more about us than we know ourselves. I can't remember everything I ever bought online, but they will. Why would they forget? They don't forget. So you have this curious situation where the algorithm knows more about me than I do. Therefore, they're probably in a better position to work out what I really want. Because they know that I was, went on some extreme skiing websites and salivated over the latest skiing gear, whatever it is. So if I go on to one of those uh, sites to find a holiday, what will pop up will be, without my asking, those holidays that resonate best with that algorithm's view of my inner desires. And when I pick my holiday, it will feel extremely comfortable uh, and a perfect fit. Why wouldn't it be a perfect fit? Because the machine knows all about me. Now, does that leave you feeling queasy? Or do you just shrug your shoulders and say, that's the kind of world we're in? That's about the purchase of a motor car or holiday. Exactly the same processes apply to the purchase of a, or the acquisition of a political idea. That's what makes me worried about the future of liberal democracy. I'm Tom Clark, the producer was Jay Elwes, and you can read more on international affairs in our forthcoming issue where China is going to be under the spotlight. Also on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk, whilst you're perusing our fascinating articles, you might also note that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable. Please be sure to tune in again soon to the Prospect Podcast. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. 
Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.